I believe you've already greeted each other, but if you didn't get a high five out there or a lunch invitation to someone, you wanted to invite them to lunch, go ahead and get it done. Uh, while you're doing that, if you have a Bible, go and open up to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're in a new series called Church in the Wild. More than a Kanye song. Okay, some of y'all didn't, some of y'all didn't know that. You thought it was just a holy thing and you just had your world right. Uh, Acts chapter 8. Uh, that's where we're at. It's in the second part of the book of Acts that we're studying. Uh, Luke writes the book of Acts. He writes a gospel called the Gospel of Luke. It records the acts and work of Jesus while on earth. The book of Acts, after the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1, records the inauguration of the church and the Holy Spirit coming and empowering a once cowardly people to stand and be bold witnesses who would ultimately all uh, die as witnesses to the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what we have, except for John, oh, the one caveat, John, they tried to kill him twice. They ended up putting him on an island after they boiled him alive, and he wrote the book of Revelation, and then it's rumored that he died there in isolation. Uh, so everybody else died for their faith. Just want to make sure we're being historically accurate. Sometimes your theological professor's voice kicks into the back of your head with a, that wasn't right. So... There you go. Now we know. Acts chapter 8, that's where we're at. This is the church moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And some very familiar language because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the disciples standing before the risen Jesus ask, is it at this time that you're going to bring your kingdom to bear in its fullness and its weight on earth? Or is it going to be longer? And Jesus says in Acts 1, 8, uh, it's not for you to know the times and places for which the Lord has set, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus tells this group of disciples, do nothing until the Holy Spirit comes. And so they go into a season of waiting after Acts 1-8. And this is the idea that you and I, if we're to live the Christian life, are to do it submitted to Jesus, bearing our cross, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is not a list of rules that you and I keep in order to make us Christian, in order to qualify. It's not like we have a certain kind of dues that we pay that allow us to be qualified within the kingdom of God. It is a blood-bought privilege that is received as a free gift from Jesus that qualifies us and seats us with him in heavenly places and allows us to be his people. We have been called to be an Acts 1-8 people, going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But if we're to be an Acts 1-8 people, we've got to expect an Acts 8-1 kind of persecution. An Acts 1-8 people will be met with an Acts 8-1 persecution. What's going on in Acts 8 verse 1? Let's look at the text together. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with killing Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. I would submit to you that Acts 8.1 did not feel like a move of God. Acts 8.1 did not feel like God was positioning a great revival to take place or for the gospel to advance. It probably felt like they were going to be snuffed out. It probably felt like they were so divided that they were going to just live a life of isolation and discouragement. And that's a reality for a lot of us as followers of Jesus. It's this reality that we need to remember that there are times where our life seems upside down, but it is absolutely being designed by a designer who is making it right side up for his glory, who's doing something great that we cannot see in the moment. You see, suffering and heartache and persecution always tempt us always tempt us to lose sight of eternity. 
And as followers of Jesus, you and I have not been called to be consumed with the things of this world, but to be consumed with what's to come in the world to come. And at times, you and I in suffering lose sight of the fact that it's not about us living our best life right now, that it's not about us living a life of comfort, but it's about us living a holy life and a godly life, and that is the main thing. And God has empowered us to make that thing a reality in our life, a godly way of living. But you got to understand, if you want to live an Acts 1-8 way of missional living, it will be met with persecution. It will be met with scorn and attack. It will be met with moments where you go, where is God and what is God doing? You see, God's kingdom, advancement, revival, and power will always be met with opposition from an enemy that desires to get you to forget who you are and what you're here to do. This is why Paul in one of his letters to the church writes, do not get involved in civilian affairs. I'm worried in this church that there are many of us that have become too consumed with temporal things and we've lost sight of the eternal thing. And as a result of becoming consumed with the eternal thing, we've gotten involved with civilian things when we're meant to be ambassadors of a kingdom that is to come. You and I are meant to represent Jesus in the way that we live, in the way that we work, in the way that we endure through suffering and heartache in a way that speaks to a glory that's worth waiting for, that speaks to a kingdom that's worth uh, awaiting its arrival in its fullness as we await for it to come in its full weight to bear on earth. On this side of earth, you will have trouble. Jesus promised it. And it's something that we see over and over again. There is an adversary that counterpunches every move God makes. The adversary plays checkers. God is going to be demonstrated in Acts chapter 8. Plays chess. And as the adversary thinks he's jumping and making moves, all he's doing is positioning people in places where God desires for his glory to go forth and into a new place and territory that it's never been. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says this about the battles that we face as followers of Jesus. As Acts 1-8 people in the battle of long observed obedience to God, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. We don't often talk about spiritual battle. We don't often like to bring these things up, but the truth is if you love God and want to serve God, you will be met by an opposition that does not love God and desires to distract you from your service to God. This is always going to be a consistent theme that we face. Now here's the good news. There are going to be times where the king of this world, the principles of this world, will use everything in this world to discourage you. They'll make money tight to see if you'll stop honoring God. They'll make your circumstances difficult to see if you'll stop trusting God. They'll begin to test the things that they can manipulate in this world to see if you are really rooted on a rock or if it's just something that was built on sand. But here's what you need to know. Our Savior, on His cross and through His resurrection, took the teeth of the enemy's bite away. He barks with things that are only temporal. So, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me? You think that'll keep me from worshiping God? Because what Jesus has ensured in His resurrection is that I will be raised with Christ Jesus and I will worship Him forever. So there is nothing that will keep me from my divine purpose of worshiping God. Height, nor depth, nor peril, nor principalities, nor anything can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. And that is a hope that we have that the enemy tries to threaten and remind us to run away from. Why am I talking about that so much right now? I'm talking about it so much right now because for some of you, you have been juked by the enemy into forgetting who you are. You've heard that it's by grace through faith that you've been saved, that it's not of your works, but it's the work of Christ in you. And now by works, you think it's what's keeping you saved. 
You've been juked by the enemy into believing a lie. You've been juked by the enemy into thinking that you've got to earn the opportunity to be used by God instead of understanding that God desires to use you right where you're at in the position that you're in. And it's not some destination or day or class or degree that's going to qualify you for the work of God, but it's the submission to his work that allows you to be used in the work of God. Submitting to his power and his presence will allow you to experience him doing things through you that you cannot imagine to be or perceive to be a possibility in your life. Life, So you will be met with opposition. The enemy will try to juke you into disbelieving what God says you are, and he'll try and trick you. This is how he always likes to do it, by getting you to prove it. Prove it Christians are dangerous Christians because they often aren't godly Christians. They're trying to get from what they're doing in their work something from it that gives them an identity or a value that they do not know that they already have in Christ Jesus. Whenever the enemy comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, what does he say to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, demonstrate it. Prove it. So this is the bait of the enemy. He wants you to prove something that God already says you are in Christ. So you need to know that if you're going to be an Acts 1-8 person, you're going to have an Acts 8-1 attack. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says it this way. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. No, no, no. Push back is a sign that ground is being taken. You've got to flip this. There are going to be times where in a path of, observe, of, of trying to be obedient to God, you're going to be met with pushback, and you're going to begin to think, oh, this means go the other way, and instead it actually means bear down, push harder. You see, see, whenever persecution comes, the attempt is to divide you from your trust of standing by Jesus' side as your shepherd. But there is a moment in life as a believer where you begin to see persecution for what it is and you know that it's meant to drive you to your Savior. So instead of becoming weaker, you actually get stronger because what was meant to separate you and divide you actually got you united with what was most powerful in you, trusting in and walking in the work of Jesus through you. And as a result of it, you experience God in a new and more powerful way. You see, this is the story of the early church in Acts 8 where they've been scattered from what was familiar into that which was in the wild. What they had known was Jerusalem. They had been there for three years. The church had met, and they shared everything together. They had an uncommon community, and they had an uncommon unity. But now they were on foreign soil. Stephen was dead. They were scattered and divided. We're told that in the setting of this story, uh, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, that the believers who were scattered preached the good news of Jesus wherever they went. So here's what happens. They get pressed. And what was on the inside was revealed on the outside. I want you to understand this. What's going to happen in your life is you're going to go through seasons and circumstances that press you on what you believe. And what's really on the inside, not what you state that you believe, but what's really on the inside is what comes out in that moment. Now this is not to say that for some of you, you've not had a moment where you've gotten in the flesh, as my mama would say. Y'all about to put me in my flesh. Anybody have a mama or a grandma that would tell you that if y'all don't stop? I had a coach one time. He cussed and made us run. He said, see what y'all made me do? Y'all got me in my flesh. <laughs> it's not to say that you're not a believer. It's to say that if we are not abiding in Christ, what comes out in crisis is not Christ-like. And whenever you're abiding in Christ in your mind and a crisis comes and what comes out isn't Christ-like, it's a reminder that you've been drifting from Christ, so you better get back to abiding because apart from him you can do Nothing. Are you tracking with me? So this is the idea that you and I are to abide in Christ. And sometimes circumstances reveal that we've stopped abiding and we've begun to abide in ourselves or our self-sufficiency. And we've got to get back to it. Because when you're pressed, what's on the inside comes out. You see, this is where, as believers, we 
shine. Jesus, before he was going to the cross, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He then withdrew within the garden from the 12 disciples, or the 11. Judas was off betraying him. And he took three with him further into the garden. It was there that he allowed them to see his distress. And then, in what's known historically as the place of the olive press, Jesus began to perspire blood. Under great stress, being totally forsaken, having the Father turn his back on him, what was on the inside came out. What do we need most from Jesus? His blood. It's why we sing about it. It's why we talk about it. It's by his blood that we've been forgiven. It's by his blood that we've been made clean. It's by his blood that we had the payment for our sin made on our behalf. And so for you and I, what we see Jesus having happen to him in the most stressful of situations in life, being totally forsaken and being made sin on the behalf of all of humanity, we see what's great coming out of him. My prayer for you as we see this early church who in the middle of distress and being scattered is preaching the gospel because it's what's coming out of them. My prayer for you is that in your moments of stress, the gospel would, be, would fill your mouth and it would fill your time and it would fill the spaces of where you're at and it would be what comes out in moments of pressing. The believers who were scattered, what, what was in them came out, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went, wherever they went. Now, where were they at? It says, Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and, the, and, and told the people uh, there about the Messiah. So, they've been scattered, and one of the first places we meet is they're in Judea and Samaria, and we get insight into Philip. There's lots of people preaching the gospel, but we get insight into Philip's ministry. Philip's ministry is taking place where? Samaria. Where's Philip's ministry taking place? Samaria. Samaria. Lean in with me. It's in Samaria. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because Samaritans historically, uh, by the time Jesus walked earth, were hated by those who were ethnically Jewish. And here's why. If you go back and study history in the 700 B.C. range, the Assyrians came in to the northern kingdom. So if you go back into the Old Testament, after King David, you have a divided kingdom. There's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. They start bickering and arguing. The northern kingdom builds a temple, and they say, this is where you worship God. And the southern kingdom's like, no, this is where you worship God. They're not getting along. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's, you know, uh, South Dakota and North Dakota. I don't know if there's a rivalry there, but there's beef. <laughs> South Carolina and North Carolina. This is definitely different. You go into Charlotte, it gets a little bit weirder. My point is... My point is, there's a divide that's there. The Assyrians come in. They take the northern kingdom off into captivity. And in captivity, they begin to intermarry and lose their ethnic identity. So the southern kingdom begins to persecute the northern kingdom, who become known as the Samaritans and the Cuthites, because they began to intermarry with people in foreign land and on foreign soil. So they hate each other. So much so that if you were in the southern kingdom and you were trying to get above Samaria, you would go on a path over mountains in in a rocky space. And it's where we get the story of the Good Samaritan because it was a rocky path that you didn't want to go to, but you had to to avoid Samaritans. You didn't want to be around them. They were seen as worthless people. On top of that, the belief of the southern kingdom about the Samaritans uh, was stuff like this. I found a rabbi. Uh, a rabbi who used to teach this, let no man eat the bread of the Cuthites or the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats uh, swine's flesh, which was a big no-no in Jewish culture. One of the prayers I found that rabbis would teach for people to pray back during this time was, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Imagine you go to a church. You don't have to imagine if you're in the South, because you can probably find a preacher that'll do this. And they start praying, like, like basically... <laughs> 
basically teaching this kind of stuff. God, don't, don't be gracious to them. Kill them. We don't want New Testament. We want Old Testament. Smite them. Bring lightning on. I mean, think about this. Two of Jesus' disciples asked if they could call on lightning to crush Samaritans before we get to Samaria. So guess who's not the first in Samaria that God sends? Pete and John. You know why? Because Pete and John got the Holy Spirit, but they still cuss a little. I, it, that's a joke. My, that, you get the point. They still do some things that you're like, ha. Okay? So God chooses Philip to go to Samaria. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> but I'm just deducting that if Pete's first sermon in Acts chapter 2 is we're not drunk, it's too early. That's the beginning of it. Go read it for yourself. That's not my translation. Peter literally said, here, let's just read it again. Because some of y'all are going, look, Acts chapter 2, Peter arose up out of the crowd, stepped forward. Listen carefully, all you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk. As some of you are assuming, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's much too early for that. It's in your Bible. It's where they were. They needed Jesus. I'm not saying that that's permissible. I'm just saying there was a problem. And they had to, they, that's where CR was started, right there. Acts chapter 2. My point, some of that celebrate recovery for those of you that don't know. I'm getting in trouble. My point is God sends, second service, it's hot. God sends, God sends a guy named Philip into Samaria first. He sends a guy named Philip into Samaria first. And I think it's worth considering why. Why, why him over the apostles? And there's a lot of reasons. The apostles stay in Jerusalem to look after the church. Peter's, uh, Philip's scattered outside of Jerusalem. And he's now carrying the gospel back into Samaria for the first time. Look at the text. This is what it says. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. You don't naturally receive someone from the southern kingdom with anticipation and expectation of they've got good news to speak. You, you naturally have, because of the battling back and forth, walls built up against people for the southern kingdom. So why would God choose a guy like Philip to carry his message to Samaria? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, you discover something about Philip. He was one of the six chosen uh, to take care of the Hellenistic Jews that were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Now, this is an interesting thing. I believe part of why God chose Philip was because he had a culture that related to the people of Samaria better than a guy like Peter, who's from the southern kingdom, who's been a part and seen as part of the Jewish crowd and mob that wants nothing to do with the Samaritans. So Philip goes. What is Philip's ethnic and cultural background? Well, ethnically, Philip is Jewish. But culturally, he's a Hellenist. What does that mean? It means that though he is ethnically Jewish, he grew up in a Greek culture and doesn't act like all the other Jews who are native. So there's, there's a divide here. You've got to understand. You have an ethnicity and you have a culture. Just because you're ethnically an ethnicity does not mean you're like everybody of that ethnicity. This is a little life lesson for you. We're different. Ethnically, uh, Caucasians... Native Americans have tribes, right? White people look different from different places culturally, like people from different parts of Europe. There's a big difference if you, your family three, four, five generations ago came to America, though you ethnically have a European background, you culturally are not very European anymore. Have you been to Europe lately? Have you listened to the accent? It got lost. That's the one thing that I wish 
would have been kept was the Scottish accent. I think I would be a much better preacher and way cooler if I had a Scottish round to my words. But that, that, was, that was left behind. It got left behind. My prayer is that none of you get left behind on the last day. That's a joke. It's a, it's, I'm hot. It's a bad day. But here's my point. Here's my point. I, I ethnically have a lot of European roots. We're Scottish chambermaids that got on a boat and came over here. If you look into my ethnic profile, like a lot of you, though, it's, it's complex. It got really complex. There's a lot of intermarrying whenever they got here. Uh, for instance, my great-grandma got married off of the reservation in Cherokee, North Carolina, and got kicked off of it for, wearing the white, for marrying the white dude. Uh, and ethnically, that's part of what my makeup is. Now, do I know much about Cherokee Indians? No. In third grade, uh, I did a project, and I looked up some facts, and I wrote it on a, a piece of board. But if I, I don't know much about that. Culturally, I'm from Moonville, South Carolina, South Greenville. I'm one generation removed from there still being integ uh, integrated schools. My mama hid during race riots when her school was integrated at Hillcrest High School with uh, another black girl that didn't want to get involved in it. They became best friends and later uh, they disconnected in college and I grew up in school, began playing basketball, became best friends with a guy named Calvin. He came over, my mama looked at him, said, are you so-and-so's son? He said yes. She began to cry because that was her best friend in high school and we had been reconnected. That's part of what makes me who I am is my family going through and experiencing some of the things that we experienced. My grandma didn't have indoor plumbing. My dad's the first one that ever graduated uh, college in our family and our history. I mean, it's a big deal. We're, we're like one generation removed from no electricity and literally peeing in an outhouse down in the south of Greenville. And that, that's my cultural background. It shapes some of the reasons we're the way that we are, the way that we treat things, the way that we treat them. My grandma never threw away anything. You know why? She went through the Great Depression. And whenever you go through a Great Depression, it sets up a culture or a value system that's a little bit different. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. But our culture matters. I relate well to good old boys and rednecks that like rap music. I don't know why, but that's kind of my people. It's kind of my people. If you like line dancing to Nelly, like we got things, like that's, that's kind of my people. And, and culturally, when I moved to California, you know what was different? People that looked like me, but were from a completely different cultural background than me. It was a completely different language, brah. Like, <laughs> and I had to learn it because culturally it was different. It was completely different. Philip is a Hellenistic Jew. Before I get myself in more trouble. He's a Hellenistic Jew. Hellenistic Jews were tolerated by Jewish people and liked more than Samaritans. But they were not fully received by people who were ethnically Jewish fully. So naturally, a Hellenistic Jew is going to have a lot more relatability to a hated people and a marginalized people like Samaritans. Here's why I bring this up. Because some people are like, well, why are you bringing it up? There's not been something in the news. I know, the church shouldn't have been waiting on the news to report ethnic and racial tensions before we began to speak about it because the book of Acts and Galatians is all dealing with ethnic and racial tensions. Like they're not getting along because ethnically they're different and they're trying to figure out how they can be unified in a savior but so diverse around that savior. That's the majority of your New Testament arguments are the Jew, ethnic Jewish people not getting along with the uh, Gentiles who are coming in. The entire book of Romans it's a letter that's written to remind them of the main thing because the Jewish ethnic people were expelled from Rome. They come back a few years, few years later and the Gentile Christians have taken their seats and they're mad. And so now they're arguing with the Gentiles about how Jewish they have to be to be Christian. 
That's where you get all the stuff about circumcision. You know what that's about? Ethnic and cultural tension around the gospel. And how does Jesus make a diverse people united? Here's my point. When you get saved, we become one. We become family. Galatians says we're no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We're one. We're family. But that doesn't mean that we're not distinct and different. God doesn't whitewash us when we become followers of Jesus, thank God. Otherwise, there would be no rhythm in the church. That, that's funny. And if you can't laugh at that, you've been Fox News too much, okay? I'm sorry. That's funny. I, some of y'all learned to clap in church that was multicultural, and that's why you learned. Watching Hitch. Anyway, my point. That's, this may not be the church for you. My point is, my point is, Simply this, simply this. You have a culture that God has given you. And it is a means that gives you a bridge to carry the gospel into places where it has not yet been. You have a culture. You have an ethnic background. And it's a means that gets you in the front door with some people to have a conversation about the gospel that you've not yet had. This is the whole point. The idea is we don't get rid of our culture. We don't get rid of our ethnicity. But we become one family around Jesus. And we become a sent people that carry and build bridges into places that we could not carry the gospel if it was just a group of people that were homogeneous. Or from the same background or from the same culture. We're a diverse people. Therefore, it makes us a deadly and dangerous people when it comes to carrying the gospel to groups of people that we could not carry it to otherwise. So, so my question to you is where has God called you to build a bridge for the gospel? Where are you being given influence because of your cultural background and because of the place that you are in life that you can build a bridge, right? So that the gospel can be, can be proclaimed. A lot of people want to lead with their pastor. The problem is, is most of the ministry I do is walking across the bridges other people have built. Whenever I get invited to a school like uh, D.R. Hill, usually it's because Dolores has been building a bridge into that school because she is a teacher and a daggum good one at that school that's raising up a generation of people. They had a full-on revival that didn't get reported in most of the news this year over there. 200-plus kids week in and week out studying the Bible before school every single morning. Yeah, they didn't put that on Fox News because you wouldn't smoke it. My point is... You've been doing incredible work. And when I get the invitation to come in and speak, I walk across a bridge that you and what was the uh, coach? Coach Henderson have built that gives me a platform to proclaim a gospel message that's already been soiled, that's prepared by the people that have gone ahead of me. I, I don't have a platform into that group. I don't know what it's like to be a middle schooler anymore. I forgot and found deodorant. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't naturally relate in that environment. But... Others have built bridges that I get to walk and come in and deliver the gospel to. And it's not that you build the bridge so that I can deliver the gospel. It's getting done with or without uh, Peter and the disciples coming. Philip's preaching the gospel and lives are being saved. In fact, verse 8 tells us there's joy in the city. Because the gospel has gone out through a Hellenistic Jew named Philip to an ethnic and cultural group called the Samaritans who are in the family tree of God, but they're the dysfunctional part of the family that some in the family want to kick out. Does this make sense? So what is your culture? What is your background? It's not that we need to like just constantly focus on it, but you need to understand it's a means by which God is giving you the ability to carry the gospel to others that are around you. So what, what is Philip... Why is Philip used? Number one, because I think he has a culture that relates to where he's going. Number two, he has a message that's hope-filled. He has a message that's hope-filled. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets with a woman at a well. Anybody know where she's from? 
Samaria. She's a Samaritan woman at the well with Jesus. In the debate, as they're going back and forth and Jesus is talking to her, what does she begin to debate with Jesus theologically about? Anybody remember? Living water. She talks about living water and having to come out of the well within her culture. But let me, let me give you this one. Her, her theological juke to try and get Jesus off of talking about her is, well, our people say the temple is, and your people say the temple is, what is she trying to get into? A tertiary issue on the temple. She'd rather talk about the temple than talk about the fact that she's had five husbands and the one that she's living with right now isn't. Right? It's a, it's a distraction method. And, and so for, for her and for all of Samaria, they've been told you worship in the wrong temple in the wrong way. Therefore, you cannot be the people of God and God will not let you in. So what does Philip come and proclaim to them? The good news of a God that's not built by hands. That doesn't live in the houses built by men. He delivers a message of a God that's pursuing us and loving us and wooing us and coming after us even whenever we're not looking to come after him. So he delivers to them a message of hope that points to good news. It's a truthful message, a message that points out the good news of the gospel, that God is not God far away or God in south Jerusalem or in the south southern kingdom, but this is God who is Emmanuel. He's God who is with us, who loves us, who meets prodigals, who are Samaritans and from backgrounds that are sketchy and have difficult uh, details that are involved in them, and he delivers us into his story to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. You see, Philip comes through with a message that explains God's deliverance and salvation, that it's not found by a temple or a geography, but it's found by a Savior that has stood in our place as our substitute. And naturally, verse 8, what does it tell us again? The city was filled with joy. God chose Philip because he gave him a message of hope. You can't pick where you were born or the background you've been given, but it is a bridge you can build for the gospel to go forth. But you all, if you're in Christ Jesus, have a message of hope that God has called you to deliver. Why did God choose Philip? Number three, I believe it's because he had a contagious love for Jesus. He had a culture. He had a message that was hope-filled. And he had a contagious love for Jesus. There's a big difference between people that like Jesus and people that love Jesus. People that like Jesus stand in crowds whenever Jesus is dishing out bread, but they disappear whenever Jesus is doing difficult things like going to the cross. A lot of us like Jesus more than we love him. We just don't want to admit it. Our lifestyle, our attitude, our demeanor actually speak to the real God we serve, us. And Jesus is the serviceable sidekick that we give assent to so that when we get to the end of our life, we can have some kind of fake assurance that we'll spend the rest of it loving a God that we don't actually love right now. What makes you think that you're going to enjoy heaven if heaven's all about loving and serving and worshiping God when you don't want to love and actually serve and worship God now? Am I making sense to anybody? Yeah. Uh, Philip had a contagious love for Jesus. It was the real deal. It wasn't something that was faked. He was displaced, but what came out of him in his displaced place was a love for Christ. This is a fact that I believe is noted in verse 4. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Literally, here's what I want you to know. You talk about what you love. The reason evangelism is such a silent small ministry in the majority of our lives in churches is we just don't love Jesus enough to talk about him on the weekends. But you still talk about football. You still talk about your retirement. You still talk about the stock market. You still talk about your government. You just talk about what you love. Now, I understand that I'm supposed to be a little bit more kind than that, but I, sometimes you need to just hear the truth, and your words and your conversations are speaking of the fact that you have an apathetic, if any, kind of love for God. You talk about what you love. When I first met Morgan, 
everywhere we went, I was wanting to introduce her to people. You know why? She was proof that either she was blind or God was good. <laughs> you couldn't get me to shut up about Morgan. Everywhere we went, all of my friends, guess what I talked about? Morgan. Guess what I was looking for an interjection and an opportunity to speak of? Morgan. I was an evangelist that Morgan was the best girl that could ever be dated, just trying to make sure the other guys didn't catch wind of it that looked better than me so that they would sweep in and sweep her off her feet. Try and steal her from me. We talk about what you love. No one has to tell me, hey, get together with your friends on Saturdays this fall and talk about Clemson football. I will do it freely. In fact, I will pay money to do it. I will sacrifice time with my family to do it. I'll drive all the way to Death Valley, sit into a, a grass-filled parking lot around a lake, but not on the lake, <laughs> which should tell you everything you need to know, sitting there, eating uh, little sandwiches that have been cut up by moms and other people at tailgates, then go stand in lines and crowds of people so I can get into Death Valley. Yet some of you who are watching this later online won't even come to this church anymore because you've got to wait for a minute for a parking spot. Is that where we're at? Is this what we've arrived to? You'll wait into a crowd and drive through traffic at Death Valley, but a move of God and being a part of a church that are the people of God and seeking to serve God, that's not worth a little bit of a traffic jam? Well, daggum, I would rather have a traffic jam here than Death Valley. May the stadium be empty and the church be full. We're around the 4th of July. You've got to clear seats out so you can get ready for the fall launch of the church. There's a difference. Do you really love him? God's first question to Peter after his resurrection when he's standing with him on the beach shores, do you love me? You know I do. What does he ask him again? Do you love me more than these? You know I do. What does he do a third time? It was a confrontation of the fact that Peter may not love God as much as he actually says he loves. And it's not that God was running from him because he didn't love him as much as he actually said he does. It was just he was wanting to acknowledge the weakness so that the power of God can intercept the weakness of his love. My love for God often is weak. It gets distracted. And it goes in different directions to other things that it shouldn't go to. And God's not mad at me because I don't love him more. This is not a guilt trip into loving God. It's like me introducing you to the best person you could ever meet if you're a single person. And I think they're great. And you're like... Sometimes it takes time. It takes seasons. You get an opportunity to learn that, man, God is faithful, that God is good. He, he, he's not afraid of be, wooing your spirit and your soul into a place of greater and greater love for him. So just because you don't love him as much as you think you do today, hey, you're, you're in good company. Peter didn't either, and he ended up dying crucified upside down, most believe, professing that Jesus was Lord and he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. Love grows. But let's acknowledge where we're really at. For some of us, we like him more than we love him. For some of us, we love him, but we don't love him like he's our chief in everything in our life. For some of us, he's, we love him, but he's not our treasure. That, that's the only thing I'm getting at. Here's what happens whenever the gospel goes out, though. I'll do this quickly. Look at it with me in verse 9. The gospel goes out, Philip's preaching in Samaria, and then we get an inside story into one of the people impacted by his preaching. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer. Yes, Harry Potter's about to come into the story. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years. Amazing people of, he had been amazing people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one and the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But 
Now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Here's what's going on. There were theatrics happening that were a ruse of a move of God. But then the power of God showed up and the people saw the difference between the fake thing and the real thing. In the American church, there's a lot of theatrics. There's a lot of coming to the church, listen to our songs, isn't our preacher great, doesn't he say things that are appropriate that never offend you and always tickle your ears. Everybody's blessed, everybody's going to heaven, there's no need for us to sacrifice because God would never want anyone to ever sacrifice anything. He sacrificed so that we wouldn't forget all the words that he spoke about suffering in the path of obedience. Forget the fact that all of the disciples but one died martyrs' deaths. Forget the fact that the gospel has historically advanced on the backs of persecution and in the face of opposition and not in the face of comfort. But hey, you stay comfortable and you don't ever stir the pot in your neighborhood. Don't ever be worried about over-speaking about Jesus. No, no. Keep up the theatrics of a Christian life without the power of it. The Bible speaks to a people like this. They talk about the power of God. They give it a mental assent to it, but they deny the power of God in and of themselves. They never experience a move of God. They're just people running around in circles talking about the power of God around them. You see, Simon, the sorcerer, he had a theatrical presentation of a powerful God, little g. But Philip came in the name of the living God. And what he had was a real power that separated the two. It separated the two to the extent that verse 14, or excuse me, verse 13 says, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and the great miracles Philip performed. He even himself was like, man, I, I had a stick that was attached to that thing that I was floating in the air, and this is the real deal. He, he, he turns and he begins to follow Philip. Now, in the midst of everything that begins to happen in Samaria, verse 14 tells us the apostles who were still in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message. This was something that they even struggled to believe was a possibility. They had been with Jesus, but they were still struggling to not understand or believe that it was a possibility. God had set up in the early church before the canonization of Scripture an apostolic authority. And these apostles were over the early church, and they were stewarding the early church. And Philip was a deacon in that author authoritative structure. He had gone out and preached the gospel. People had been saved. But we're told, and this is the only occurrence where we'll see this in our New Testament, that they had not received the Holy Spirit. When Peter preached in Acts 2 and 3, he preached, people were saved, they were filled with the Spirit, and they were baptized all on the same day. Right? You go forward and you look at other places in, 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 in the New Testament. People receive Christ. They pray, receive Christ. They receive the Holy Spirit. It happens that day. It's a simultaneous gift. In fact, the covenant marker of the Christian is the Holy Spirit. It's by his fruit that we know you're a follower of Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, self-control, right? Th these are ways that we know when that fruit, not by your effort, but by the work of the Spirit in you, begin to flourish in your life. When we begin to see that in your life, you know, and that's God. That's the work of God in you, in your life. That's why Colossians says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the Christian life is marked by the Spirit. Now, there are groups that teach you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you use the Holy Spirit in this way. And that way is usually speaking in tongues. So come forward. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, sure, you may be saved. Receive it. And here's the deal. God doesn't give everybody the gift of tongues. It's not something that he gives to everyone in the early church. Not everyone has the gift of tongues. In fact, you get enough people with the gift of tongues in the church, and Paul has to write an entire letter telling them to settle down in the church. 
There's a lot of prescription of how you're supposed to use the gift of tongues. It's a private prayer language and it's a prophetic language. And it's a prophetic language. It's a word for the church that's in rhythm with the scripture. You're to have a translator that stands there. Yet often when we use it in public spaces, there's no translator around and no one's saying anything. See, see, here's the problem. Most of the people that want to divide the kingdom of God, just like the people who ethnically Jewish were doing with the Samaritans, most of them just want attention and they're trying to find their significance in what they are and getting it out of the exclusion of others not getting to be it. So there are times where people practice their gifts and there's a spirit there, but it ain't holy. It's a spirit of pride. It's a spirit of wanting to be seen and wanting to be made much of. It's a spirit of wanting to be worshipped instead of worshipping and serving God. So we see this take place where the disciples come. It's the only place that we have it. I believe that's there because the scriptures would be canonized. We have an authority that's set in place in the church over church history. And what we see is, I believe, a simultaneous, when you give your life to Jesus, you're given the Holy Spirit. You're given spiritual gifts. Some of them you recognize. Some of them you don't recognize. They are sharpened. They are developed. They grow in time for the glory of God and the service of God to the benefit of your neighbor and people. Just give me a lot of theology there really quick. Then, after the laying on of hands, Simon the sorcerer comes up, seeing this happen, and goes, I want to buy it. And he offers money in his mind that would earn Peter giving him the Holy Spirit. And Peter's response to him is, no, 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 may your money perish with you. Because the Spirit is not bought. God is not bought. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. You don't indebt God to you. And, and we see that and we're like, what does that mean today? Well, some of you came in and you didn't feel like you deserved God's grace because you hadn't earned it. It's the opposite spectrum of the same problem. It's you thinking that you're not worthy or you can't sing or you can't worship because God knows the sin that you continued in your life this last week and it's still there and it's still problematic and it's still it's taking away your love for God. And, and in your mind, you've not earned the opportunity to be loved by and to experience the Holy Spirit. Or on the other side, maybe you've not offered God gold today, but you sit here in your mind thinking God owes you. You've been obedient. You've put in your time. You've served this church and that ministry so many years. You deserve the platform. You deserve the opportunity. It's the same thing. Instead of offering God gold, you've offered him your accolades and platitudes as reasons why he needs you. And that's never why he chose you in the first place. You see how this works? How many of you today withheld worship in the first part of this service because you didn't feel like you had earned the right to give it? Or how many of you withheld worship because you felt like God hadn't kept up his end of the bargain to deserve it? That's sorcery. That's you trying to manifest your own destiny instead of being a child of providence that allows the hand of God to lead you into the future that God has called you to do. Get the witchcraft out of the man-made version of religion that you're following and get back to the gospel. Simon has theatrics. God has power. Simon built a platform on his greatness, but Philip delivered a message of God's greatness to him. You see, there's a big difference between the gospel and man-made versions of it. And this is what scares me the most about the South, is that there are a lot of us that have grown up in a cultural understanding of the gospel, but we never experienced the power of it. I know things about God, but I don't know God. I can talk to you about who he is. I can tell you about his character, but I've never experienced his character and his goodness to me. For a lot of people down in this part of the, part of the world, we live in an existence that makes us think, oh man, we're, we're so saved to where it's like almost weekly I have to come in here and debate and go, look, is the fruit really there? Is the love really there? Do you really love him? 
Are you seeing his spirit in spite of you produce fruit through you that you cannot explain apart from the power of God in you? This is how we know that we're followers of Jesus, that Christ's spirit is in us, that he's commissioning and empowering us to his work and to his way and to his will. So I, I, don't, I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you've got kind of a pseudo version of the gospel that you've been believing, that it's some kind of like weird version of karma and Jesus married together. But that's no gospel at all. You see, Jesus has stood in your place as your substitute. He's lived the life you couldn't live. He's died the death you deserve to die. And he's offered to forgive you by his own sacrifice and payment of his life on the cross for you so that you can be raised into a new life that you've not earned, nor do you deserve, because of his good grace and mercy that would send the Spirit at the point of salvation into your life to become a new creation that you cannot become apart from his work in it. For some of you, you've just never experienced that. So our prayer team's here, and if you need Jesus, I invite you to come forward and let them pray with you and talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ today. Let's stand to our feet. You move us to the Lord leads. In Jesus' name.